Hey everyone, and welcome to Health After Cancer. Today I'm your host, Natasha Steele, and in the studio with me are L. Billman. Hey everyone. And Lydia Shapira. Hi. So we could not be more excited to have Nicole Barr join us today as our guest. She's a real expert in the mental health needs of cancer survivors. And in order to build this expertise, she worked for years. She has a nearly 20-year career as a nurse practitioner, in, particularly in the lymphoma clinic, where she cared every day for people who were receiving active treatment for their cancer. And Nicole, you know, as you've always told me this story, I think you know, you really started to notice, gosh, there is so much going on and there's so many unmet needs from a mental health perspective that you were identifying in your patients. And this led you to, you know, have this passion for for caring for not only the physical, but also the the mental health of the, the people that you were meeting in, in oncology clinic. And so as a nurse practitioner, you went back and you got a um, an LMFT degree, which is a licensed marriage family therapist degree. And now your field is really psycho-oncology, which if I could sort of summarize, and I'm sure you'll do this so much better than me, but it's really sort of the mental health needs of people with lived experiences with cancer. So huge thank you for being here today. We are so excited to learn your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Nicole, I'm going to jump in and just ask that first question. I'm so impressed by the fact that you have been a nurse practitioner working with cancer patients for years. And then took the training to become a therapist and now see cancer patients and cancer survivors and caregivers from the mental health side. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Uh, Well, I was, even when I became a nurse practitioner, probably more um, psychologically minded. And I had done training with the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco on contemplative practice with uh, people with terminal illness. And that was actually how I came into being a nurse and a nurse practitioner. So... My entire journey as a nurse and a nurse practitioner was um, uh, had that backdrop of understanding how we relate to suffering and existential issues. And it was really my confrontation with the world of oncology that took me um, off guard because it is on some level and understandably for, uh, for people who are coping with the disease and caregivers all about trying to stay alive and this metaphor of fighting. Uh, and sometimes the piece about how do we just cope, how do we just live with what is, which is the cancer experience, whether it's in survivorship or early diagnosis, how do we cope with that? That piece always sort of followed me around as I worked with uh, patients in a number of different oncologic specialties, but particularly in lymphoma, working with patients that I got to know over many, many years because delightfully many people survive uh, different kinds of lymphoma. Uh, Understanding the difference between people who continued to suffer and people who had more emotional and psychological freedom and relief and understanding that over years and realizing that was really the area of care that I uh, probably had the most to offer in addressing um, and that I liked the most. Nicole, can you talk a little bit about your experience working with survivors across the age and life spectrum and how this evolves? Like you meet someone, maybe they've just received a diagnosis or maybe they've exited active treatment and you're following them over time. Like, can you, are there any particular trends or themes that you think emerge when you're caring for someone longitudinally? Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the things that also made me want to do more 
work on mental health and coping because when you work with with a large number of cancer patients over a long period of time, you realize there are um, stages. And some of what I do sometimes is just to normalize how people feel in a particular stage of coping. Um, and in fact, one of uh, my mentors in this, um, I referred a patient when I was in lymphoma clinic and she was misdiagnosed as having a much more severe psychiatric disorder out in the community. But one of my mentors saw her and said, this is totally normal. She's just been diagnosed uh, with a very scary seeming uh, cancer, though she, she did well and, and survives to this day and has a very full uh, and wonderful life. She at that time had one young child and she was so um, emotional that those emotions were misread by a community mental health provider as a much more serious mental health diagnosis than she actually had. And it took somebody who sort of had seen cancer patients, many cancer patients over um, many years to understand this is totally normal. We all can go a little crazy at times of incredible loss and trauma and upset. Um, and I will say, you know, I shared with some of you before this meeting, I recently went through something where my husband had a terrible medical event and I was sort of watching myself as I was going through it and I thought, I'm the crazy patient now. You know, I'm the crazy <laughs> patient wife. I was, um, you know, went into shock during part of it and had almost a shocky reaction where I almost um, needed to throw up in the emergency room of Kaiser Redwood City right near here. Mm -hmm. And I knew this was not a very sophisticated way to be responding to this issue, but my nervous system just took over. I thought my husband was dead and I thought I needed to throw up. I didn't, mm -hmm. fortunately. <laughs> not on him, not around him. He finds this quite funny, though, in retrospect. Yeah. It's so interesting for me to hear you talk about the spectrum of emotions, because in my practice, I've seen that people feel things. Some of them really display them, and you can see them. Others, yes. perhaps, are feeling, but are not really conveying them. And then I've seen some who really get some of these psychiatric diagnoses attached because yes. they show a lot of emotion. So can you talk a little bit about how we should think about it for those of us who are clinicians and those who are actually going through this about things like, you know, anxiety and PTSD and depression and grief when somebody really is struggling with a disease like cancer? I think that's a great uh, question. And there's so much I could say about it. I, I think that's absolutely what happens is people experience strong emotions and, and strong emotional experiences. Some people express them. Uh, some people don't express them. Some people express them through their body, like I was describing, like feeling like you have to be sick or having terrible headaches. People, some kind of things go into the body uh, uh, in a certain way. And so all of these things can present as something that could be misdiagnosed and overpathologized as mental illness, but might be completely normal for that person's coping, particularly if they have prior experiences of stress or distress or trauma and have learned those ways of coping. People get sent to me a lot uh, because they are angry. And almost without exception, when I hear their stories, they have pretty good reasons to be angry and understandable reasons to be angry, but their anger doesn't have a place in the clinical setting. And they maybe don't have the skills to acknowledge and express their anger in a way that is sort of socially appropriate or focused at the right issues. I mean, who among us can do that? Not me all the time. So it's hard and people sometimes are angry or grief stricken or in shock at some of the things that 
to those of us, you know, on the nurse practitioner or physician side are sort of normal conversations. You know, Nicole, the one thing that I also would love to ask you about is this, um, as a physician, as an oncologist, I sometimes see that there's, that people are reluctant to accept my recommendation to see somebody who's trained in mental health because of a stigma associated with having a mental health diagnosis. Do you have any tips for me? Are there things that I can say to somebody that perhaps will lead them to the help that I think that they could use? Well, I think that's the that's the art of uh, persuasion, right? As a doctor is figuring out what would this patient um, will convince them. And so sometimes I'll ask patients like, what, what about this worries you? Because people still have that fear of stigma when they see me. And often they'll see me because I'm the nurse practitioner and therapist on the team as opposed to the psychiatrist. And sometimes I will say, well, what what were your worries? Have you ever talked to somebody like me? One of the reasons I love my work at Stanford, um, I also love my private practice work, but my work at Stanford enables me to see people who would never come to see a therapist ordinarily. And it's interesting to find out for that person, what was the stigma? There are a lot of our patients who have very strong cultural stigma who come from cultures or countries where mental health diagnoses literally can mean that they're imprisoned or restricted in different ways. There are people who have, um, it's a very common scenario, is somebody who has a more severely mentally ill um, family member. So they associate psychiatric medications and diagnosis and providers with that person. And they, their identity is built around being the caregiver or the person who's not mentally ill. So sometimes it takes a little exploration. Like, if I said this, would you go? And why or why not? So it's interesting to me to hear you say that. I grew up in Argentina, and my father was Austrian. So for me, everybody has a psychologist from the time that they're in their teens. Yes. And even when I go down there now, you know, they may not are, they may not have all the resources to treat cancer, but boy, every cancer patient gets referred to a psychologist. Yes. So again, I, I totally see the cultural yes. uh, aspect here where for some, you know, some of us getting mental health when we're facing a difficult physical diagnosis is something that we would absolutely do just as we would see an orthopedist if we fracture a leg. Right, but so culture can work in favor of or against the stigma of of mental health for sure. Yeah, and there's definitely the cultural components, but then I also think there's something unique about the experience of cancer and the intersection of that with mental health because, you know, I had a friend with very severe, you know, metastatic disease who was upset and angry and probably bordering on depression and in the context of her illness. And it was suggested at some point with her clinical team, you know, her oncology team, that she should seek mental health help, which made her even angrier because her feeling was, you know, gosh, how could I not be all of those things about my reality? How could I not be angry? How can I not be depressed? And so I do think that cancer has this interesting overlay when it comes to mental health around what's normal in terms of a reaction from a mental health perspective. And just curious, like, how do you how do you approach that when you're working with someone who has every right to have a normal reaction of anger or sadness, you sort of help them cope. I think you have to start with validation, like really validating this is totally normal. Of course you're furious. Of course you're grief-stricken. Of course you're scared out of your wits about this. This is an existential threat. Even people who have cancers that aren't life-threatening at that time, just the word cancer 
for many people across many cultures just sort of equates the the sense of uh, risk to life. And so it's terrifying for many people, no matter how much you tell them, you have a good cancer, you have an early stage cancer, yeah. doesn't matter. And so I think really validating that before bringing up the referral and saying, look, it makes sense to have a lot of big emotions and a lot of difficult experiences. And it's still something we want to help people with. Like I think as I was describing to you before, and when I worked in lymphoma, we treated a lot of people with steroids and steroids cause all kinds of side effects from sometimes you know, mental health side effects, like even uh, psychosis to high blood sugar. And if any of those side effects occurred, we treated them all the same. We said, the treatment is causing this and we still have to address it. Your blood sugars are high. You may not be a diabetic before this happened, but now we've got high blood sugars over weeks or months. We still have to treat you with the same tools we would treat a diabetic. That diagnosis doesn't have to follow you around the rest of your life. But right now we need to help you with these particular experiences and symptoms. Yeah. So it sounds like validating and holding space is something you found really effective in in your work, you know, caring for these patients. Another, another question I have is, is a similar topic. When, for people who go into remission and who have this feeling of happiness that their cancer is quote unquote cured and grief that this happened at all, like how do you help people hold space for two things at once? Like what does that look like in your practice? I think... People don't often have um, sort of permission or experience to hold things that are bittersweet, that have sort of two aspects. And sometimes I will probably, because I gesticulate a lot, which you can't say on a podcast, but I'll often give people sort of the, the image of holding two different things in two hands, that in one hand you could hold that you have one kind of experience, like joy that you're done. And on the other hand, grief of all that you've lost in the course of this treatment. Uh, the um, side effects, your hair, the kind of innocence and confidence that you're gonna live to old age, if that's the case. Um, the feeling that that might be the case, even if your doctors are telling you it's not and you're gonna be fine. So I think the ability to hold and validate contradictory big emotional experiences is a big part of the work that I do. Yeah, and it's so different than oncology because I remember distinctly being told when I was diagnosed, you should be so happy about this type of cancer you have. And I sort of, you know, nodded my head like, okay, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling happy. But I just couldn't feel it because at the end of the day, I was being diagnosed with cancer. And of all of the cancers, yes, it was good that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I think a lot of you know, the work I've done learning from you has just been around how do you hold space for two things at once? How do you do that? Yeah. And I think that moment I saw so many times as a nurse practitioner where the physician would come in and cheerlead and say, we're done with treatment. Yay. This is so great. And they'd leave the room and I'd be left to, you know, write my note or do the, you know, work of a nurse practitioner and the patient would just cry. And then I would sit with them and basically do impromptu and untrained therapy, which is why I became a therapist. I figured I better get a little better at that moment, um, where people would say, I, I don't feel joy. I, I can't tell you how many times people said that to me. I don't feel happy. I'm yeah. supposed to be happy. My doctor tells me I should be happy. And who feels things when somebody tells them you have to feel that way? Yeah. Uh, you know, it reminded me of summer camp, mandatory fun. Yeah. <laughs> So now that you are a therapist, can you tell us a little bit about specific therapies that work for cancer patients? 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about, um, I go to these conferences where everybody makes presentations, this kind of therapy worked, or this manualized intervention worked, and I'm always looking for sort of common factors. What are the what are the things that that these therapies have in common? So it's not like we all have to adopt something very specific with a different alphabet soup of, of uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. There are many that work, and I'd say those are the main ones, acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive therapy that has mindfulness elements. But there are, you know, apropos of what they do in South America, more more psychodynamic approaches that can be very informative. So I think that the common factors have to do with connecting with another person and having rapport and having somebody, as you said, Natasha, hold space and connect with you on an interpersonal level and understand uh, your human experience uh, with some uh, what, one of the founders of psychotherapy calls unconditional positive regard, you know, with some care and compassion. And then I think a lot of it does focus on um, acceptance uh, and then refocusing more on purpose and meaning than on simply being happy. And what about the families? Uh, We talk a lot about cancer being uh, something that happens to a family, but Mm -hmm. then we don't have a whole lot to offer to the parents of the kids with cancer, the kids whose parents have cancer, or the spouses or partners who are doing a lot of caregiving. Do you have any advice for us? Um, I I personally don't love the word caregiver. Um, Having just been a caregiver through a serious illness, sometimes I had days where I wanted to say, like, I actually don't care today. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. I I will take care of, but I am burnt out and frustrated and exhausted uh, and want to, you know, do my own thing. Uh, Because a lot of caregivers are sort of thrown into this. You know, a lot of family members and spouses and girlfriends and boyfriends are thrown into this. They don't get asked, really. So I I think... um, I think just attending to those people sometimes, like asking them how they're doing. And that's where I do think referrals or encouraging people to get mental health support and have a person of their own they can talk to is very, very important uh, to acknowledge that, even just acknowledging people in the room. And and it, it makes a big difference to sort of introduce yourself. And a lot of people come on video visits or to visits with me in person with their, their person, whether it's their adult child or their uh, partner, I think it's the reason a lot of, you know, men come to mental health support is if they're in a heterosexual relationship or even in a in a gay relationship. Often it's a partner who says, you know, you're uh, you're being a pill. I need you to get some help and support. Uh, and that's another thing that I like about my work at Stanford is that we I do see a much higher percentage of um, uh, male identified and and men than I do in regular private practice because uh, women seek therapy more than men. We just know that to be true. I can only imagine how hard it is for whether we call them co-survivors or caregivers because there's so much clinical attention spent on a person who is navigating a cancer experience. And then I can imagine there's a lot of guilt for that other person, whether they identify as a co-survivor or caregiver, of needing any attention themselves. And so I wonder if a lot of what you do with that identity is validating as well, that this is also happening to them, that they also have needs, that it's okay for them to carve out their own time and you know things like that. You know, interestingly, yes, I think that that is definitely the case. And usually when you say those things to somebody, they will kind of let down and cry a little bit and say, yes, that's true. But I have a lot of people who are in that role who are kind of soldiering on at that moment and they don't want to hear it. They're like, I'm fine. I'm yeah. fine. Just pay it. You know, you almost have to 
be with that resistance in the room that they are like, look, I'm fine. I'll take care of myself later. I did a very brief study on caregiver sleep and most people, they just didn't want any of the interventions because they it was their meaning and purpose at that moment to care for the person who is, um, who is dealing with cancer is so much greater than their need to take care of themselves. And so you have to really get to know people, I think, over time and build some trust with them and just say, I care about you. I see how this is impacting your health. You know, we know from, you know, data and follow-up studies that caregiver um, health does, uh, is impacted over the long term, and you can't care for others if you're not healthy yourself. But often people aren't dealing with a ton of resources or a ton of choices, a ton of good choices at that moment. So sometimes it's okay to just say to a caregiver, you know, it's okay if you want to give it your all. If that's what you need to do right now to feel that you're doing a good job, then give it all you got. Zooming out a little bit, as cancer survivors move into survivorship and they kind of face all of the challenges that life has for them, can you provide any advice on how to tell whether you're just kind of going through like anxious moments or dealing with short bouts of anxiety versus whether or not you might actually have an anxiety disorder and kind of when when that scale tips over and you should see a mental health um, specialist or try to seek more support? That's a great question, and I wish there was a really bright line. Uh, you know, sometimes I can talk to people who seem to have a lot of symptoms of anxiety, but they're very well adapted to it, and they don't feel that they need any help at all. And sometimes people have a much lower threshold for tolerating anxiety. I, I sort of feel like the line is not so much where the anxiety becomes pathological as much as how how hard it is to carry and whether it's getting in the way of doing something you want. Uh, if it's getting in the way of going for a follow-up test uh, because you you know, have a lot of anxiety going to the Women's Cancer Center or going to the MRI machine, then it needs some attention because you're not doing what you need to do to stay well on some level. Um, but sometimes it can just be uncomfortable. Even mm -hmm. somebody who can march through and be a good soldier and do all the things they need to do, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. And it would help to talk to somebody and have a, a, a richer toolkit Mm -hmm. of ways to manage those anxious feelings. I think the, the most important thing is really how to hold and manage the anxiety. It's not, it, it's sort of inevitable there's going to be some. Got it. I don't know. Does that answer your question? That yeah, that, that helps a lot. I think I, I was trying to get at how we all go through, it, it's like normal to feel sad. It's normal to feeling anxious. But when does that become something that you should actually seek care for? I, th I think a, I think another way to think about it is, are you alone with those feelings? Mm -hmm. Do you have anybody to talk to about those feelings? And what are you doing with them? Obviously, there's kind of clinical criteria, like, is it keeping you up at night? Is it getting in the way of other things you need to do? Is it impacting your daily life? Is it mm -hmm. preventing you from, you know, fulfilling your role? But I think a lot of it has to do with how much suffering and how alone you are with things. I, one of the things I think make you unique and phenomenal is you have this rich experience within oncology and caring for this population. And then you have this expertise in therapy and some of the tools that come with that in your clinical work. And I'm wondering, you know, most people do not have access to a provider who's also oncology trained and really understands the unique needs of this population. Do you have advice for therapists that are looking for some resources to help understand the, this population? And this is sort of a two-part question. Do you have resources or ideas for patients who don't have access to an oncology-trained survivorship therapist 
but are working with someone they really like and trying to communicate some of what they're experiencing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think certainly finding somebody who's trained in something like acceptance and commitment therapy, in grief therapy modalities, um, in a meaning-centered therapy, certain kinds of therapies, most experienced therapists will have seen people who experienced uh, health challenges or loss, people that are experienced in working with the aging, even if you yourself are not an aged person, sometimes a more experienced or older therapist will have, or just even an older person who's become a therapist. I have many colleagues who've said to me, who've come to me and said, oh, I'm really interested in this kind of work because I've gone through this with a family member. I've gone through this myself. Um, and so I think that it's very possible to find a good therapist who's not somebody who can know sort of a bizarre amount, as I may, about a particular area of oncology. People that are experienced at working with anxiety and fear, as long as they've worked with people who have anxiety and fear of real things, mm -hmm. are also very good. Uh, I don't think you need to be somebody who has the medical background in oncology and the therapy background to be helpful, for sure. So interesting, Nicole, to think that you started with this vocation for hospice type of work and palliative medicine, where there's so much emphasis on presence and being present and bearing witness. And then you dove into work in oncology and now as a therapist. So my last question to you is uh, perhaps also about the mental health of the clinicians who work in the cancer space and work with cancer survivors. Um, what have you noted? I have noted recently that I could not do it without my colleagues. Uh, I think I did this work alone uh, when I started doing it because we didn't have a psycho-oncology program. And I started this actually as a pilot project. Uh, and then the physician who was supervising me in this pilot project left. And I was working with only a kind of remote attending for a while. And I can say that now that we have a team, a bigger team, it's so helpful because it is work that, you know, you are creating space and being present for things that are difficult. And especially during COVID and especially working remotely, it really helps to have colleagues that you can uh, discuss things with, talk about, even just talk about unrelated things, who sort of know, um, know what you do, who understand what you do. So, Nicole, do you have advice for someone who may be on the fence thinking about if they need help or if they're willing to engage? Like, what, what do you think would motivate someone to take that step? I think often what motivates people is looking at how your mood symptoms, you know, and mood symptoms can include, you know, irritability as well as, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of symptoms of anxiety and depression, you know, feeling down, feeling blue, feeling worried, but how these kinds of symptoms impact the people that we love or the people we're in relationship to. Because even uh, worry and anxiety, while people might feel it makes sense and it's normal, anxiety can kind of run us around. We can have the same thoughts over and over again, um, like a hamster wheel. And that can impact the people that we love and we relate to as well as ourselves. And so it certainly can impact parenting. Um, so I think that being a good parent, being a a more uh, accessible partner, all of these things are often good motivators for people. And if people don't have people close to them, it can just be a sense of living, um, holding this all with a little bit more ease and a little bit more joy in life, like sort of motivating people uh, by thinking about what are your goals? Like what kind of life do you really want? How do you want to, nobody can change, 
that this, uh, you know, often when I say to people, like, what are your goals of being here? They're like, I wish I didn't have cancer. And I'm like, yeah, I wish that too. But given yeah. that this is what, these are the cards that one was dealt, how do you want to go forward in life? So thinking about goals, thinking about um, the impact on other people uh, around you and how you're going to live your life and relate to others. Those can be motivators. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Sure, it's, you're welcome. I, again, I always learn from you every time we get to interact. And I'm just really excited that our listeners will get to hear a lot of your thoughts. I think mental health is such a huge part of this experience. And as clinicians, we often don't have tools to give our patients to you know, be able to cope with this. So I'm so happy you exist and that people like you exist because you're so darn good at your job and just really grateful that you were here today. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. Your hosts today were Lydia Shapira, Natasha Steele, and Elle Billman. This podcast is produced by the Stanford Medicine EdTech team. Our producers for this episode were Lydia Shapira and Dila Baumgartner. Our creative director is William Botini. Our sound engineer is Bindu Madava. This episode was edited by Shauna Poli. Our guest today was Nicole Barr. For more resources and information from our hosts and guests, please visit our podcast website at www.healthaftercancer.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.